This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Alicia Keys there, work on it. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On this May Day 2020, we explore work issues for trans people recovering from affirmation surgery with Johnny Valkyrie. We discuss issues for sex workers during the COVID-19 pandemic with Peaches from the Vixen Collective. And on the health policy front, we chat with Daniel Comansoli from the National LGBTI Health Alliance about their new campaign. 3CR Johnny Valkyrie is a young trans person from Brisbane who's currently recovering from affirmation surgery. And Johnny begins our interview by describing the journey that led to their surgery. I remember being fairly young in middle school and developing into an adult. And instead of taking curiosity and pride in the way my body was developing, I was deeply uncomfortable. And it was not for being ashamed of being seen as female by the rest of the world, because that is not something to be ashamed of. It was more that I was being seen as somebody I was not. And I also felt this deep discomfort in the way my body was developing because of how the functionality presents itself. You know, I felt uncomfortable at the idea of my the breast that I had developed being involved in sexual or child-rearing activities. I did not want that for me. I didn't I did not like um the ways that people started to refer to me like young lady. Um so it, it became increasingly uncomfortable for me and I had no words to describe it because there is really no education about transgender people. And when my parents explained to me what was happening to my body, I understood it. I was okay with it. I was all okay with puberty, but something still felt wrong. And I was not born in the wrong body. This is my body. But there was this deep discomfort around the breasts I had developed and that sustained itself up until recently when I had them removed through my affirmation surgery. And so that took years of, you know, jumping through red tape, uh, saving plenty of money and really having a safe environment to recover in, which I do have that many transgender people do not. What can you tell us about your recovery? What what has that journey been like? I was in bed for the first week, almost exclusively. It does take an extreme toll on your body, uh, especially if you are larger. So I have quite a large rib cage and I had a lot of breast tissue to remove. So the scar that I had was 
well, this is rather, uh, the scar that I have is running all the way under my arm. And I think we, I think we underestimate how much upper body strength we actually require day to day. You know, when we reach for the morning cup of coffee or we stretch in the morning, these little actions I can't do yet. I can't, um, I can't reach for things. I can't lift things. And this is, this is interesting. I'm, I'm learning my body again and I really, I'm so blessed to be in this situation. My recovery has very thankfully involved my parents. My mother has been my primary caregiver. We hired a hospital bed because it was going to be hard for me to get out of bed by myself. So I used uh, sort of the, the movement of the, the back of the bed to lift me up in the morning because everything hurt when I moved. And it really was um, really, really helpful. I recommend it to anybody who has this surgery to get yourself an electrical hospital bed or at least a lazy boy to sleep in. But yes, I, I had the privilege of my parents taking care of me, which most gender diverse people do not. And your surgery is a very recent thing. How long ago did you have it? So just over one month ago, I, I had this surgery and I, I, I'm still coming to terms with that because it feels like a long time ago, especially when you spend most of your time indoors. It feels like a very long time ago, but it, it in hindsight, it really, it really isn't that long ago. It was five weeks at, um, it was five weeks at, at, at most. And, you know, I, I've had to do wound care. I've had to test my body every day to see what, see what I can do. Uh, I've had my sleeping patterns interrupted because it can hurt to sleep on my side. But the best part of this, this journey so far, which is quite new, is that now that the preliminary healing is done in terms of there are no more stitches to come out, the mental wellness that I have now is unparalleled. I feel like a new person in many ways. And some transgender people do not want or do not want surgery or do not have dysphoria or cannot access it. And that is completely valid as well. For me, it was really uh, important to change my body along with the changes that I was having in my life. So yeah, it, it has been about five weeks now and I still can't exercise, but I can walk around. And what's it been like with the COVID-19 pandemic? I guess, as you said before, that restricts your capacity to move and go outside when it's already restricted. Yes, I actually wrote an article for Pink Advocate about my experience here and recently published it on Medium as well. It was really interesting for me to sit down and write because I realized some of the I realized some of the situations that 
had arisen around the time that I had surgery. So firstly, COVID was starting to get out of control at that point. And I just made it. I got in for the, what they call an elective surgery, just one week before the government put an essential hold on elective surgeries. And I had my bag, I had my bag packed for the psychiatric hospital because I was not sure how I would react if I got the phone call that I would have to wait another six months to undergo this. And that might sound strange to you, but there is a great deal of mental preparation leading up to that moment where you have surgery, which alters, which treats dysphoria most of the time, alters the way that your body is permanently and something that you have been waiting for and have had to fight for essentially for years. So I was, I put my mental health first and thought if I get postponed, I want to be ready to go to the hospital for a few days just in case the worst of the worst happens. Well, it didn't. Um, I was prepared. My, my surgeon said, we're all good to go. And, you know, when you need follow-up appointments, we'll let you know if we have to do those by telehealth. However, there are so many people who were not as fortunate as me who had surgeries organized and have now had them postponed and i think the only silver lining to this is that we have to stay inside so you don't have to bind to go anywhere you know because we're not going anywhere you don't have to worry about not passing because you're not going to be walking past anyone uh ideally so i i think in my in my mind there are some benefits, even though it is extremely difficult. And I, and I do understand, I, I feel that this might be a good time for people to start thinking about themselves rather than how the world perceives us. And that is something that transgender and gender diverse people tend to find difficult. We are so often occupied with how the world sees us instead of just being ourselves for ourselves did you have any difficulties with work issues leading up to your surgery yes i did i noticed that covid was taking a toll on businesses understandably and so certain roles in my previous workplace were starting to be made redundant and mine was one of them unfortunately many workplaces have diversity and inclusion programs for gender and sexuality diverse people. However, very few of them have policies for their employees who may need to undergo procedures during the course of their employment. So the problem there is, and I will give you a prime example, um, do you remember the ANZ ads that came out. Absolutely. When I saw that on Twitter, I really honed in on one particular issue and, and I 
and I commented and I said, hello, ANZ, do you have a transitionary leave policy for your staff? And they replied, no. And I thought, how many thousands of dollars had they spent on this horrific ad campaign when that investment could have gone into employees who are transgender or gender diverse and would like to undergo an affirmation procedure but will not be paid for the duration of their recovery. Realistically, we need at least four weeks to recover before we can get back to work. And even then, we can really only go back to the desk job. We can really only type. There's, you know, it really depends on what surgery you have. That's incredible. The ANZ didn't have a surgery leave for its own staff, despite courting the gender diverse community with those exorbitantly priced ads. Absolutely. And this is the problem with rainbow capitalism is if they know that queer content is profitable, they will engage in it. But when it comes down to brass tacks, they will not support our community where it matters most. They want the floats and the Mardi Gras parade. They want to be seen by other businesses and potential clientele as an equitable company to work with. But at the end of the day, they are a bank and they want to make money. And so, of course, my criticism is not directed at anybody who is engaged in that campaign. I feel that often as queer people, we have to put aside ideals to make our living But the campaign itself, the way that it was engineered, the unapologetic response from ANZ, from the criticism, it really made me deeply uncomfortable, especially when they responded to me as a transgender and gender diverse person and said, no, but we're currently working on a transition policy. Not good enough. How about you email me so that I can help your company create policy that supports transgender and gender diverse people. Put your money where your mouth is. How are we supposed to even... So there there are two points I want to make clear. Firstly, if you hire transgender and gender diverse people, expect, as condition of our employment, that we will probably undergo some form of procedure during the tenure of our employment, and that we will require recovery time. So if businesses are not prepared to give us what we require as the people we are, then they are not prepared to hire transgender and gender diverse people, and they are not prepared to call themselves diverse and inclusive workspaces. The second point I want to make is about the fact that we cannot realistically undergo these procedures without having exorbitant amounts of money to begin with, but also enough to cover rent, food, medical bills, and what have you. And if the place that we work does not support us in the recovery process, we could realistically become homeless because it is a decision between undergoing that surgery 
whatever surgery we decide to have. It, it is the difference between undergoing surgery, which can be life-saving in some instances, and continuing to work and never getting there for what a company that is not going to give you the support that you need. So the answer is, well, you leave your employment and you undergo this surgery, but how are you going to pay your bills? You see how vicious a cycle this is. We already have to pay for these out of pocket because the Australian government considers it cosmetic. It really sounds like surgery leave needs to be enshrined in law as a basic entitlement. Yes, I believe so. I mean, if you, uh, the first argument that I hear from opposition is that, oh, well, you know, tax dollars shouldn't be, shouldn't go towards people who want to have elective surgeries. Well, all right, let's look at the numbers. How many transgender people are there? We, as we, we are not really sure because the census does not include us. That's a story for another time. But Realistically, there are very few transgender people in the grand scheme of the population of Australia, and even fewer of us will need to undergo surgeries for medical and reasons which include mental health and physical health. So firstly, if companies can afford to pay maternity leave for up to a year for parents in the workplace, if the taxpayer can afford to pay every politician in Australia an exorbitant salary, then they can afford to support some of the most marginalised people in the country. And so, you know, it, it really goes without saying that money could be spent elsewhere. The NHS in in the UK has capacity to treat transgender and gender diverse people under under the NHS. So you can actually get some surgeries under the NHS. I believe that New Zealand has a waiting list on the public system for transgender and gender diverse affirmation surgeries. And Australia is really behind. Australia is really behind in terms of transgender and gender diverse rights. So, you know, I mean, I'm really not surprised given that we don't even have dental under Medicare. I think that would be the first port of call. Uh, I believe that we don't even have cancer treatments under Medicare. That would be even more so important, but we do need to think about the future and the fact is that what i under what i went through was not cosmetic if i had cosmetic surgery i would be posting pictures going wow look at me i just lost 20 pounds in an hour well that's great good on people good on people who can afford that and and want to do that for themselves what i had done was holistic it was physical, it was mental, it was social, it was spiritual, it was every part of my life has been impacted by the decision 
that I made for myself and it has removed so many barriers for me in my life. And that is something that cosmetic surgery cannot provide. It cannot provide that emancipation from suffering. It doesn't. We know that. So when you have diagnosable dysphoria or quite severe dysphoria and you undergo this procedure, which, by the way, you don't really have to have to undergo this procedure, um, when you, but in my case where I had this severe mental health problem that was sort of related to my transgender identity but, but not exactly causative of it, I struggle to explain it because unless you've lived it, it, it's very hard to understand. But undergoing this procedure means that I can live freely and we want everyone in our community to live as peacefully as possible through their lives with as little suffering as possible. And if you believe in that principle, then you would understand the need for somebody who is transgender or gender diverse with dysphoria, you would understand the need for somebody to reduce that suffering and to make their life more accessible. Johnny, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's been wonderful chatting. Great. Thank you so much, James, and the same to you.
Harvey there from her album To Bring You My Love, Working For The Man. Well, Peaches is the acting spokesperson for sex workers peer support organisation, the Vixen Collective, and I spoke with her this week. Of course, like it's very exciting that the government has announced their economic response to COVID. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, a lot of sex workers um, will be left without any financial support. So one of the big um, the big issues is that sex workers often don't want to identify themselves as sex workers to the government. Um, so there's that need for, for privacy to protect themselves from potential discrimination. Um, and that can make it really difficult to sort of account for prior earnings and that sort of thing that the government the, the kind of information that the government wants to see um, for the job keeper and job seeker applications. And, you know, then you also have issues of people who perhaps don't have a permanent address, uh, people who don't have uh, photo ID, and of course, migrant workers. And, you know, we've seen across all industries that migrant workers have been unable to access any government support. And so we're seeing a lot of people slipping through the cracks um, who have been unable to get any money from the government. And, uh, you know, we've been pushing pretty hard uh, to get uh, to ease the restrictions around um, these sorts of supports. But, yeah, so what we've, what we've come up with is we've been coordinating uh, nationally with Scarlet Alliance and um, other Australian peer orgs, and they've put together the Chuffed Fundraiser which is emergency relief for sex workers who are ineligible for the uh, government um, for the government funding. Uh, so I think it's raised $40,000 so far, which is fantastic. And each week that money is allocated to, um, to sex workers in need. Um, so we really need to keep to keep topping that up. So definitely um, encourage any members of the public who want to help out sex workers at this time um, to jump over to the Chuffed website and to contribute to that fund. It sounds like sex workers are going through enormous hardship and, as you said, falling through the cracks in the system. That must have incredible mental health and physical health and, and social impacts on them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of issues with homelessness um, and housing instability, um, inability to just meet basic needs like buying food and medicine and that sort of thing. Um, and, yeah, of course, uh, it can be incredibly stressful. Uh, the social distancing and quarantine is is taking a toll on, on people's mental health, absolutely. So it's really important for everyone to, to come together as a community to support each other. I think both... Financially, you know, as I mentioned with the the chuffed fundraiser, but also yeah, just um, keeping up with the Skype chats and or the Zoom chats as it is now. So, yeah. Peaches, what are some of the issues sex workers are raising in peer support during the pandemic? I think yeah, definitely the um, the struggle to access government funding is absolutely one of the big issues at the moment. And of course, I think there's a lot of anxiety around housing, um, how to communicate with, um, you know, with property managers and all of that sort of thing. And clarity around, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of people in community are really unsure what this uh, so-called moratorium on evictions actually entails. Um, and that's, yeah, that's creating a lot of anxiety for people. And, and yeah, also a lack of, a lack of clarity around, uh, what, you know, what people are and aren't allowed to do 
as well. And I guess this really highlights the need for government funding of peer organisations like the Vixen Collective, which receives no government funding, despite the enormous amount of peer support that it's offering. Uh, This epidemic, this pandemic, just highlights the need for the government to step up and provide that peer support funding because you people can't be expected to do it, you know, for nothing when, when, you know, you're struggling to survive as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we do run entirely on on um, volunteers and a lot of the support that we provide, you know, we have fundraisers and things in community and, um, you know, and a lot of people are, are very generously do contribute to covering some of the basic costs of the organisation. So, you know, even things like just getting phone credit to keep the peer support phone running. And, uh, you know, that's much appreciated, but absolutely, I think it is time. Um, Victoria is the, is still the only state with an unfunded peer sex worker organization. And it's absolutely time that, um, that, that we got some funding so that we can do, uh, do more for our community and, and give people the support that they need and deserve. Of course, Vixen Collective does have an office at Trades Hall. I imagine you're not able to access that office at the moment. Well, we we do have access to the office, but uh, no, we have it. We have been working from home, and yeah, respecting the the social distancing. But yeah, it was very unfortunate that we sort of we finally got ourselves an office um, that yeah, Trades Hall were um, generous enough to help us out with, and yeah, we're back to working at home. So, <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully the well, we'll see. Maybe the restrictions will ease, or yeah. And then we can uh, start to make use of the space. Of course, last year, the Victorian government announced an inquiry into sex work with the view of uh, perhaps full decriminalisation occurring in this state. Uh, Where's that at? Yeah, so of course, um, you know, coronavirus has um, has slowed everything down a bit um, and I think a lot of our attention has gone towards that, um, but it is still chugging along. Um, so we do, you know, we do have some concerns about the review. Um, I think as we've, uh, as we've spoken about before, um, the terms of reference for the review um, has still not been updated um, and, and there are some elements of that that, I think um, sort of misrepresent where the sex worker community is at. So things like uh, the New New Zealand scheme, uh, the New Zealand model is largely preferred by decrim advocates. And I'm, I'm not sure which decrim advocates exactly they're referring to because it's certainly not Vixen Collective. And it's it's definitely not in line with um, the will of community. It's very much our opinion that um, that. Uh, we want full decriminalisation of all forms of sex work and the New Zealand model, of course, still criminalises migrant work. So to, for us, it's very important that um, we all walk over the line together and that we don't leave marginalised workers behind. You know, and I think that there, we are feeling um, a bit of a lack of consultation with the with Vixen Collective as the peer org at the moment. Um, and I think it's important that we really push the government to centre sex worker voices um, in in the review. Obviously, we are the primary stakeholders in this, and um, and any review that doesn't centre uh, the needs and experiences of current sex workers, um, I, I I do worry 
um, will not give us uh, the sort of results that we are looking for. It's disappointing those terms of reference haven't been revised considering the inquiries largely, from what I can tell, being run out of uh, Fiona Patton's office, an upper house MP who has uh, strong links to the Eros Foundation. That's disappointing about the terms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and we do hope that, um, you know, Fiona will update those terms of reference. Um, and we're certainly, certainly pushing hard for those to be changed. Finally, Peaches, is there anything else that you would like to add about sex workers issues at the moment? Well, I suppose I'd just like to say that if there are any sex workers out there who do want to become, in, who do want to get involved in, um, in the review is to please absolutely get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. And also, um, yeah, if, uh, if people want to be sure to please contribute to the, the Chuffed fundraiser, it's the best way that you can support sex workers uh, who don't have access to government benefits at the moment. And that was Peaches from Sex Worker Peer Support Organisation, the Vixen Collective. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. And here's XTC, Census Working Overtime. <laughs>
XTC there with their 70s classic sensors working overtime. Well, the LGBTI Health Alliance is about to launch its national LGBTI health pledge campaign. And this week I spoke with their policy officer, Daniel Commonsoli. Uh, hi, James. Um, yeah, so we're in the middle of developing uh, a campaign called the LGBTI Health Pledge Campaign. And it's really to promote LGBTI inclusive principles uh, to ensure that LGBTI people continue to receive culturally appropriate and affirmative care during this challenging time that is the global pandemic. So obviously this is an unprecedented public health crisis and that's um, presenting enormous challenges to governments and health systems across Australia. And beyond the immediate health impacts of COVID-19, there are profound uh, social and economic consequences as well. And they're, they're quite serious and far-reaching. And so we know that the impact of COVID-19 may exacerbate existing health inequalities and some populations that experience health inequalities are disproportionately affected and may be further marginalised when accessing crucial health services. And that includes LGBTI people. So really the aims of this campaign is to build awareness around the unique challenges that our communities face when accessing the health system during the COVID-19 pandemic. And yeah, like I said before, to really promote those inclusive practice principles for LGBTI people so that, you know, health and social services are continuing to provide that really quality care. And hopefully that will then build confidence within LGBTI communities that these mainstream health and wellbeing services across Australia will continue to consider their unique health needs and their circumstances. And that will inevitably reduce discrimination and stigma in healthcare settings against LGBTI people and thereby improving their health outcomes. So that, that's really the crux of the campaign that we've developed. Tell us about some of the particular challenges LGBTIQ community faces during this crisis in relation to their health. Uh, there are a number of them. Uh, so we know that Many LGBTI people live ha happy and healthy lives, but it is well documented that a disproportionate number experience poorer mental health outcomes and have a higher risk of suicidal behaviours in their peers. And so, um, you know, that those kinds of disparities are exacerbated in a way um, in the context of, you know, social distancing and, you know, not having access to um, social supports and community events and venues uh, during this time but there are also um it's not just mental health as well um we also face a number of other health disparities including drug and alcohol use we know that we have elevated rates of drug and alcohol use uh, some cancers as well and there are also uh, particularly unique challenges for transgender diverse people and intersex people and also as well our Older LGBTI people, um, like many other older Australians, are vulnerable to COVID-19. And, you know, they, they draw support from families of choice, but many will experience heightened feelings of isolation and loneliness during this time. Uh, so that's just a few examples of what we're dealing with here. And also, too, it's been noted by the family violence sector that the current pandemic will see an increase in the rates of intimate partner and family violence, and that's going to put enormous pressure on services to respond. And we know that LGBTI people in particular may be separated from their, their family choice and friends who are not in their household during this time. 
uh, and that's shown to be protective factors for overall health and well-being. So we have some, some young LGBTI people who are living with their family of origin or their biological family and may hide or modify their identities and expressions out of fear or shame. And so when coming out to, to family members, um, LGBT young people may face rejection, abuse, and violence. And we also know that intersex people can also be subject to rejection and abuse when they identify in a way that is different to their gender assigned at birth. So it's really vital that, you know, family violence services, drug and alcohol services, mental health services are really there to uh, consider the, the unique um, health needs and experiences of LGBTI people during this time because COVID-19 does not discriminate and nor should our health response. How are health services responding to these issues that you're raising? Are they being inclusive? Are they, are they implementing those inclusive practices that you outlined? Yeah, look, some, many services are doing a fantastic job in providing culturally safe and high quality care. And, you know, the Alliance is acutely aware of the hardship facing organisations providing essential services and programs to LGBTI communities at this time. So I guess this is why we've developed this exciting social media campaign to really just um, encourage mainstream service to continue providing that care. And it's a a campaign that um, is really easy to get involved in and to engage with. So it involves a number of uh, uh, pledge cards that services can share on their social media, pledging to provide um, care to recognise that discrimination and stigma has an impact on the health and wellbeing of LGBTI people. And we've also got inclusive practice tips that can be shared across social media as well. Um, And those inclusive practice tips are quite sector specific. So we have a range of tips for disability services. We have tips for the mental health sector. We have tips for um, intimate partner violence and family of origin violence services. And um, yeah, also um, population specific tips as well. So um, really, specific tips uh, to provide inclusive care to trans and gender diverse people and intersex people as well, um, because we know that they have unique challenges facing this crisis as well. Can you tell us some of those specific tips for those different groups? So for example, so for trans and gender diverse people, we know that they experience higher levels of discrimination in healthcare settings. And uh, that, that includes being regularly misgendered at hospital, particularly those who live visibly trans and whose Medicare records do not accurately reflect their name uh, and their gender. Uh, So some tips that we've come up with are, for example, using pronouns correctly and consistently, asking what name and pronoun they use and take note of that on intake forms. And also just to ask what terms transgender diverse people use to describe their body parts and or body to help them feel empowered and affirmed. And also just to, for services to consider displaying visible cues, such as, you know, the trans pride flag, resources, posters, and trans-specific literature to ensure transgender diverse people feel welcome and comfortable accessing um, the service. And also too for intersex people. Um, so we are, we are really encouraging uh, services to pay specific attention to the health needs of intersex people and that because that's fundamental to providing inclusive care and there are a range of uh, tips that um, services can 
implement or embed within the service delivery to ensure that that is achieved. And we've got we've got tips like you know respecting individual choices about terminology, how how they describe themselves, uh, treat intersex as a distinct intersectionality in its own right, and making your work trauma informed, and also recognizing the reality of medical trauma that that affects many intersex people. And also just some tips around including information by peer support and advocacy organizations and providing full and diverse information to intersex people and their parents during this time is crucial. So that, that's just some of the um, examples around um, inclu- LGBTI inclusive practice tips for specific populations. And I'll, I'll just sort of mention a few sector specific tips as well. So in the context of domestic violence services, uh, we've got here uh, just avoiding or trying to avoid making assumptions around the gender of someone's partner during this time. And by extension, using gender neutral, inclusive language rather than limiting language that is only directed to certain relationships and ensuring that, um, you know, trying to recognize the unique forms of intimate partner violence among LGBTI communities. And um, I should probably mention too that uh, in the disability space, we know that, you know, LGBTI people living with disability are currently experiencing unforeseen costs and barriers during the pandemic, and that's causing significant levels of anxiety and distress. And the physical and mental health impacts of social isolation may also be more heavily felt by LGBTI people with particular disabilities. And so we're, we're encouraging disability services to really provide information and opportunities for LGBT people with disabilities to develop and express their sexual orientation and or gender identity and to really support people to access external connections with LGBTI services without fear of judgment being made by their carers or support workers. And also just some very basic things around accessibility of um, services, for example, you know, offering video conferences or phone appointments and offering safe transport options uh, to get the medical and social services they need. So that's just a a few examples of LGBTI inclusive practice tips that uh, health and social wellbeing services can really start to think about and embed in in their work. You mentioned drug and alcohol issues before. Are you finding that because people aren't going to work or are working from home, that there's more alcohol and drug use within the LGBTIQ community? Uh, There's limited data around that very issue at the moment. But like I said before, we do know that we, uh, we do use alcohol and illicit drugs at higher rates than the general population. And I, I think it's worth mentioning too that Data collection at the health service utilisation level uh, does not capture LGBTI indicators. So it's going to be very hard to assess the health impacts on LGBTI communities in the short term, and that's going to be a major issue. Um, So if we we had LGBTI indicators embedded across administrative data sets in all these kinds of services, we'd get a clearer picture of the health impacts that this current pandemic is having on our communities, but we just don't currently have those robust, inclusive data collection practices um, in Australia at the moment. And you're probably already aware that the Alliance has been working hard to um, get that done. So, but we do know that because people are socially isolating 
and may not have access to friends and the social supports that they're used to, um, that that's providing an environment where people are really at higher risk of, you know, problematic drug and alcohol use during this time. So, um, yeah, I, I noticed the other day too that the the health department, I think it was, have got this app uh, and it really helps individuals to monitor their alcohol usage during this time, which I think is a fantastic initiative uh, because we know that people will be probably drinking more during this time and we just need to be cognizant of the fact that there are a range of issues as to why people may be doing that. Um, they may be alone, they may be feeling um, anxious or stressed, not just with the current pandemic that we find ourselves in, but also just the current the the current stresses that LGBTI people face at the moment. So, yeah, it'll be in- interesting to see um, what the data says about that. But like I said before, that there is we're very um, constrained in terms of the data that we have access to, and that that's proving to be problematic. And that was Daniel Comansoli from the National LGBTI Health Alliance. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. But taking us out is Sia with Sweet Design. I'll catch you next week on In Your Face. would like to thank Thornhubber Health for their financial support of this program. 
Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.